Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Today is the day. It is the second hour of Mornings with Carmen. Uh, Thank you for taking us along with you today. A little shout out here to a couple of uh, listeners in the first hour um, who are looking for some updates and at least one person looking for a clarification. Um, Jason Jensen uh, called out my my misrepresentation of the way the visiting and home teams work in baseball. And so, uh, Jason, you're right. The home team only bats last if the home team is behind in the bottom of the ninth. Otherwise, the visiting team bats last and loses the game. And so uh, you're exactly right, which is just a reminder that the World Series is going to a seventh game tonight. The uh, Washington Nationals will be the visiting team in the city of Houston where they will face off with the Astros. And if the Nats win, we're just going ahead and telling you that on Friday morning, when our weekly guest, Matthew Hawkins, is here, he will be insufferable. So that'll be my uh, early warning assessment. I have an update Um, Thank you for those of you who uh, have been praying for Matthew, my stepson, who had emergency surgery yesterday. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for your prayers. He is uh, out of surgery, out of recovery in the pediatric ICU. um, And, you know, we we now begin the healing process again. So this is the beginning again, again, healing process in his life uh, related to his facial cranial deformities and the way that we deal with those things. Um, So thank you for your prayers. And yes, I will be headed back there after the show. Um, Also, some updates on conversations that we had on Monday with both David Aikman and Ruth Kramer. So we talked with both of them about the protests in Lebanon, um, and we talked with uh, with Ruth about the protests in Iraq. So I wanted to bring you up to date. In Lebanon, the anti-government protests have actually led to the resignation last night of Prime Minister Harari. You are going to hear that in the news today. I would expect more violence as these uh, as this regime change is really, really complex. This is a country where the Iranian-backed terrorist organization Hezbollah holds a lot of sway over the hearts and minds of many of the people. Also a reminder that Israel is a really nearby neighbor and they are the target uh, often of Iran's anti, uh, you know, anti-Israel, anti-Jewish sentiment in the region. And so uh, Israel is really on high alert as this regime change will take place in Lebanon. And then also um, we're reminded that one out of every three people currently living in Lebanon is not Lebanese, but a refugee from neighboring Syria and Iraq because of the wars in those torn up places in the world. And so just a lot of uh, questions about what will happen to those most vulnerable people who already have nothing and have fled their homeland uh, as refugees. It will be very important to watch and see what happens to them as there's this regime change, which in large measure is related to the lack of resources in the country for the people. Um, All right. And then in Iraq, uh, watch for regime change here at the highest levels, remembering that we are talking about um, 
uh, Muslim clerics who are Shia in a nation where there is a very large Sunni population. And so um, watch what's going to happen uh, today and tomorrow and, and this week in Iraq as well. Uh, protests continue there and protesters, um, at least yesterday, were, uh, were, being, were being killed. So lots going on. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Bill English is in the house from BibleandBusiness.com. He and I are going to talk about the recent report of the, oh gosh, millennials and Gen Z, adults, young adults in our population, really everybody 38 and under, 50% of them have at least a somewhat favorable view of socialism. We're going to talk about what that means uh, for the United States of America. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us today is Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. Welcome back. Hey, thanks. It's good to be back. So we are reading um, that really pretty much all young adults. So here, the the survey that we're talking about, um, they're surveying, you know, everybody in the population. But the the age groups that I really want to focus on is this sort of 38 and under. So I think we tend to think of millennials as young people, but really we're talking about full-grown adults now when we oh, talk sure. about millennials. Oh, sure. And then when we talk about Gen Z, we are talking about very young adults. And so for uh, for this conversation, you know, we're looking at everybody 16 to 38, let's say, and 50% of that group has at least a somewhat favorable view of socialism and a somewhat negative view um, or disfavorable view of capitalism. So I want to have that conversation with you. Uh, today. First of all, remind us maybe of the difference between socialism and capitalism. Well, socialism, uh, uh, two things that the way I I define it. Number one, socialism is primarily a godless system as opposed to capitalism being a god-full system, if I can put it that way. Uh, Because um, in in capitalism, you have private property. You have the ability to uh, contract and do some other things that private parties can do. And the scriptures often talk about uh, you know, holding to contracts and, re- and not stealing and respecting others' property. Whereas in socialism, a godless system, the only god in that system is the state. And whatever the state goes is or says is, is what goes. And uh, you usually have just a, a – really it becomes an oligarchy maybe of 10, 15 people who really run the country and, and set the moral and the ethical – principles and the legal principles for the day. So socialism is primarily a godless system, and it is also a a system that uh, does not value freedom. And uh, this is where I think uh, socialism would have a hard time taking root here in the United States unless it's cast as something different because of the hyper-individualism that we have in our, um, our nation today. Right. I think that there are at least some people who completely misunderstand the term. I mean, we had uh, we had somebody on national television come right out and say uh, recently to uh, to a senator who was describing Maduro as a socialist. And this this, uh, you know, television personality person said oh, Maduro is not a socialist. Well, OK, Maduro is actually for those not paying attention. Uh, we're talking here about South America and the devastation of socialism in many countries there. Maduro is a socialist. Absolutely. I, didn't, I mean, that, so so I think that when we talk about the term socialism, you know, it's important for people to recognize 
We're not talking about social media. We're not talking about social networks or social networking or the way you feel about your social life. We're actually talking about a really, and when we use the term godless here, we're, we're, not, we're not just talking big G godless. We are actually talking about a system that views itself and the state as God, yep. as the highest yep. authority. Yep. And, and so that's important, I think, for people to understand and recognize. What does it say to you <clears throat> that emerging generations so misunderstand the history of what socialism has done um, to people, like through communist systems, um, that we would be at the place where we think we want it? I, it what it tells me is that, A, the enticement of socialism is still there. Uh, it's and and it it does sound kind of good on the face value, but when you dig into it, it doesn't work at all. And usually, millions of people get killed as a result of socialism and communism. B, it tells me what an absolutely poor job our public schools have done in teaching civics and teaching our system of government, and why freedom is so important. And this is where this is where this whole concept of freedom, um, <clears throat> when carried out properly in a, in a society. Um, there are parts of it that become very, very messy, right? And to the point where uh, a lot of people believe that it's just unfair. And, and the unfairness of it leads people to want to be more fair. And the more fair means we have to have more uh, government interaction and more government uh, takeover of certain industries and certain parts of our lives. It's because freedom is messy and socialism is not. But socialism will lead you to nothing but poverty and death and mind control and a loss of religious freedoms, uh, freedom, it does exactly the opposite. And uh, it's something that um, I value. I, I wish our politicians in America would stand up and say, my number one goal is to protect your individual liberties rather than mm. my number one goal is to make sure that um, we have income equality or something like that. I, I would prefer that they just focused on protecting our individual liberties. So I think that, Bill, one of the challenges that we face is that the version of capitalism with which we now live is pretty corrupt and corrupted. And so when we come back, let's talk about redeeming capitalism. Let's talk about um, the way, you know, business would operate if God were really governing the lives of business owners, because that's really your sweet spot at BibleandBusiness.com. So when we come back, I'm going to ask Bill English, what's God's purpose for business? And by extension, Right? Like commerce and trade and all that good stuff. We'll sure. be right back. All right, continuing my conversation with Bill English from Bibleandbusiness.com. Um, let me, let me uh, lift up a listener comment, Bill, and then we're going to talk about um, really God's purpose for business as, as we understand it from the Bible. And uh, so we have a listener who's concerned that uh, our characterization of capitalism as God-full and socialism as God-less was uh, too simplistic. And so let me encourage uh, Mark, who is concerned about that, to listen to my hour-long deep dive into the godless nature of socialism with Bruce Ashford, um, which was, you know, definitely at the 400 college level uh, experience in terms of this conversation. So what Bill and I are trying to do today is react to a particular headline. And so uh, some things we have to simplify if those seem oversimplified to you. There are other conversations with other guests. Uh, I'm thinking here about my two conversations I've had on the book Redeeming Capitalism with a professor from, remind me where he was from, um, Ken Barnes. 
Oh, like Gordon Conwell. Yeah, Gordon right? Conwell, so, yes. Yeah, so you can go back, Mark, and listen to the conversations that I have had with Professor uh, Ken Barnes about his book, Redeeming Capitalism and the Process by Which That Would Happen. And then also lots of conversations with Bruce Ashford and others about the very godless nature of socialism. All right, continuing our conversation with Bill English, let's pick up with this question. What is God's purpose for business? Well, I think uh, at Bible and Business, that was the question I asked myself uh, when God plopped a business in my lap and I was going, why in the world, you know, why, why do I do what I do? And I needed a purpose behind it. And I came up uh, after looking at the scriptures and praying really for several years that God has four purposes for business. One is profits and profits provide sustainability. The second one is products and, and business is meant to I give uh, people a way to provide products and services that allow the community to flourish, okay? The third one is people or passions. Uh, I'm trying to use a P word here, and I go back and forth between people and passions. But business is a place for uh, people to develop their God-given talents and to express their God-given creativities in a righteous way. And then the fourth one is philanthropy. And the philanthropy is God created business to create wealth so that those who have more can give to those who have less so that the less do not lack dignity and can, and can participate fully in the life of the community and the church uh, without having to have some kind of stigma attached to them that they have less than what the rich might have. So the rich, I think, in, in this case, it becomes a moral stain on the community to allow uh, the the poor to exist uh, without basic safety nets that only the rich can provide. All right. So when we talk about, um, I, I just think that as soon as we use the word profit, there are people who uh, hear, uh, they're hearing something negative there, right? They're right, hearing, right. They're hearing that some people are getting something and other people aren't getting something, and that doesn't sound like the way Jesus would do it. But it's not a zero-sum game. Capitalism is not a zero-sum game. It's not like if I make, if I, if I sell you a glass of water that costs me a dollar to create and I sell it to you for three, it's not like I took $2 from somebody else other than you and it was a voluntary transaction. Uh, capitalism is not a zero-sum game. And profits are good. Profits are a social good. Profits are a spiritual good. Profits are something that are absolutely necessary in order for businesses to sustain and thrive. If you don't have profits, you'll never have business. And frankly, you'll never have any kind of ministry because all nonprofits are behind them are profitable businesses. The only place nonprofits, colleges, churches, the rest of them get their money is from profitable businesses. You don't have profitable businesses. You don't have those. You don't have a society. You don't have people working. Uh, profits are a good thing, not a bad thing. So I think that when one of the things that we forget when we're engaged in this conversation and it gets kind of heated, you know, when somebody is, you know, arguing that everything ought to be fair and it ought to be everybody ought to, you know, have access to the same things and and ought to get the same things. And everybody ought to certainly at least have the newest iPhone and uh, and 5G uh, access and on and on and on and healthcare and a college education and probably a house, um, what we're forgetting there are all of the ways in which God is described as a landowner who has expectations of production. He has day laborers. Um, he has, I mean, there are, there are all kinds of stories in Scripture where it sure does not sound like you just get everything by not working. 
What is I God's? Mean, in fact, you know, in fact, in fact, I, this, I have a I have a potato example in my own family. A potato so, example. Well, because that's you know right. We fought, we you know we had a little farm, and oh, so okay. we yeah. In fact, it's Jim just said last night. Um, we in the next two days we got to get those sweet potatoes up out of the garden because we're going to get a freeze on Thursday, and well, so today's Wednesday. So I might be pulling sweet potatoes right after the show this morning. Just letting you know. Okay. Um, but here's the here's the the, the potato story. So uh, several years ago, we actually let the kids plant whatever kind of potato they wanted, and uh, and they each got their own row. So that was fun, but you had to weed your row over the summer. And let me tell you, some days you don't want to weed your row. You just don't. So Matthew resisted weeding his row for several days, and therefore the weeds got really bad. And so, you know, the day came around where it was like, you have to you have to hoe your row today. Like, you have to weed your row. And he sat under a shade tree with his arms crossed, refusing to do it. And I said, dude, here's what you don't understand. Um, you know, God's really clear. The man who refuses to work doesn't eat. And he's just continued to sit there in a huff. And then that night at dinner and subsequently every other night at dinner, which is unusual for us, but we had potatoes, mashed potatoes, which is his favorite. And the bowl got passed right under his nose and he didn't get any. And let me tell you, that next Saturday, he was out there hoeing his row. Because you learn, right? You learn that if there is something that I want, I might have to work for it. And work is not a bad thing. No, work is a good thing. It's a gift from God. So, um, yeah, so I, I'd, I'd like to just rephrase this as in terms of what is God's system of fairness? Because the American system of fairness, I think, is very different than God's system of fairness, right? And it's, we're almost up against the clock here, so I know we're not going to be able to dive into this. But what is God's system of fairness, and how can Christians tap into that and be content with how God defines fairness, I think of that of of that parable where God paid the day lab where where the master paid the day laborers the same amount of money, whether they worked twelve hours or two hours, and and the scriptures apparently uh, said that that was very fair, right? So weird, right? Like that's it, so weird. It is so weird to but, the way we think. But just like how God's system of justice is different than the American system of justice, I'm going to assert that God's system of fairness is different than the American system of fairness. And maybe, Carmen, this is something you and I can pick up next Wednesday. You got it. Next week's question. What is God's system of fairness? So there you go. That'll be our our week in advance tease. Uh, you guys can check out what we're talking about and more about Bible and Business at BibleandBusiness.com. Bill English, thank you so much. You bet. Have a good day. You were not abstruse at all. No, abstruse. I was not. Abstruse. Abstruse. I almost, I abstruse. Said it yeah. Yeah, okay. It's all right. You know, it's a new word. No. It's a new word. Working it out. It's, Thanks, know. man. All we'll right. talk to you next week. Bye. Is it true? That is a compelling question to ask about just almost any subject. It's certainly an important question to ask about our system of belief, where we put our faith, um, where we build our hope. And so when we talk with people who have come out of a false religion and are now evangelical Christians, I love to have the conversation with them about, you know, what does it look like? What, it, what was it like to realize, to recognize, to come to the, the, the aha moment that what you believed was not true? And that there is truth and come to an awareness that God is real and Jesus is true truth. So, uh, I don't know, maybe a month ago now? Can't even remember. We had a conversation with Lisa Brockman. Um, 
she wrote a book called Out of Zion. She is a was a sixth generation Mormon. She's now an evangelical Christian, and she's helping us understand what the truth of Christianity is and what people who are Mormon believe and the difference between those two systems. Uh, all of this in an effort to help us reach our Mormon neighbors, which is a growing percentage of our population. So that my next conversation, I've invited her back. So she'll be here in just a minute. Lisa Brockman. To think that a teenager could become so hopeless that he would choose to end his life is almost too painful to imagine. But with the increasing rate of teen suicides, no parent can afford to ignore the possibility. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. For teens, suicide is a last-ditch effort to ease the pain, to make a statement, or to get revenge on someone who's wronged them. They can't see the bigger picture. They can only see the here and now. Short-sighted immaturity mixed with feelings of despair are a lethal combination. So if your son or daughter has been dropping subtle hints, like talking about death or isolating themselves from others, don't ignore the warning signs. Get your teen the help they need before they become another statistic. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Brockman is, among other things, an author. The book is Out of Zion, and she came and talked with us about expressly about the book and her own experience of, you know, transition from uh, Mormonism. She comes from a, a a family of six generations of Mormons, um, and she came and talked a couple of weeks ago with us on the 9th of October. If you want to go back and get our first conversation, you can do that. Um, and I invited her back because not only did I find her own testimony very winsome, but I really feel like we need what Lisa is offering in terms of helping us understand Mormonism, understand uh, our neighbors who may be living in um, in that not only worldview but religious system, and how we can actually be equipped uh, to understand and therefore reach our Mormon neighbors. So Lisa Brockman, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back. Um, I, I'm compelled, if this is okay, to actually just turn <laughs> to your most recent blog post at lisabrockman.me. So let me just encourage folks, if you want um, if you want to see what we're pointing at today, lisabrockman.me. Lisa has a blog there. And the most recent blog that you have posted is about sitting on a panel um, with with other people who've transitioned from Mormonism to Christianity and yeah. feeling, I love the way you describe this, feeling the weight of this question. What did it cost mm. you to leave Mormonism? Mm -hmm. So just, can you just take us there to that experience on that stage of hearing that question and then hearing the, the, the gentleman next to you answer it? Yes. So I was on a panel with two other gentlemen who have also made the transition to Christianity and we are all in ministry of some sort. And that's what set this panel apart. And so the interviewer asks us several questions and then he poses the question, what did it cost you to leave Mormonism? And the purpose of this leaders forum was to educate them on the culture 
of Mormonism in a way that would breed compassion because working in Utah is a very challenging environment and often people can lack compassion for the people. And so anyway, what did it cost you to leave Mormonism? Well, it's been 29 years since I began my exodus out of Mormonism toward the biblical Jesus. And when he asked that question, the man to my right and myself both just a guttural blow came out of us where we both just went, oh, and it was just a visceral response. And I sat there in silence, and thankfully he was the first one to answer, and he sat there shaking his head back and forth in silence. And then he offered everything. It cost everything. And I began to weep, and it's been 29 years, and I'm crying now because it costs everything. So when we, when we think about, I'll just admit to you, when many of us who either grew up in non-Christian homes or grew up in marginally Christian homes or even nominal Christian homes, certainly those who grew up in really, you know, highly committed Christian families, mm-hmm. um, we think of what people get like we think of grace as a great get. We think of of salvation as a great get. We think about all mm-hmm. of the abundant life that you get when you become a Christian. Mm. We we do not often other than at the very personal level like maybe I had to give up a particular uh preferred sinful proclivity, but we do not think about the cost of relationships, culture, community, language family, mm-hmm. identity, generational relationships, we don't think about those costs. And so one of the things when I read this blog, and again, friends, I'm talking with Lisa Brockman, um, author of Out of Zion. You can find the blog we're talking about right now at lisabrockman.me. When I read this blog post, um, it occurred to me that for those of us who want to reach anyone who is coming mm-hmm. out of any other religion— this mm-hmm. is an this is an absolutely essential heart place to get to where we we can recognize that we are inviting someone in Christ we are inviting someone um into Christ but that means they are going to be leaving behind many things that most of us did not have to leave behind uh in following him mm, yes yeah and it's really critical to understand that because that that affects your engagement. If you come in as the cowboy with all the goodness and you don't you're not aware of the culture and the costs, then you're presenting what you're presenting your presentation is limited. Your compassion is limited. So I would love for you to um Take us into a conversation that we might have. Uh, maybe it's an initial conversation, because I know that for you, you know, the truth, the question of is it true, you know, was really a turning point, really a significant mm-hmm. turning turning point. But my but my guess is you didn't get to the truth question right off. Like some some of us, um, you know, we know our propositional apologetics so well that we know how to tear the roof off of Mormonism in terms of, you know, propositional differences. But right. propositional apologetics is not 
me loving my neighbor very well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really good in debate settings. It's mm-hmm. not really good, um, you know, in terms of cultivating a relationship with somebody living in what I would term, you know, a, a very cultish kind of reality. And so talk mm-hmm. with us about maybe an initial conversation. I, you know, I have a, a Mormon who I casually know. Um, I know that we're concerned about the same things at our public school or we're concerned about the same things at our public library or we're concerned about the same things in the culture in terms of our family values. So we share some common ground in terms of values, but we don't share uh, the same understanding of salvation. So help Mm -hmm. me get started in a conversation. Let's just call her. Let's call her Barbara. Help me get a conversation started with Barbara. Okay. well, first, you need to understand that the. The, the Trinity is up to a conversation with Barbara. And so you begin with you're engaging in a conversation the Trinity's already having with Barbara. The pressure's off. I find with Christians, especially who live in Utah, there's this pressure. I have to get the truth into them. Like it's my deep responsibility. And it's not. You get to be a vehicle of God's love to Barbara and everybody you encounter. And so just asking the Trinity to help you tag along in the conversation they're already having with Barbara is really critical. And then as I develop a relationship with Barbara, I have her for lunch. I have their family for dinner. If she has a family, I invite them into my world and I enter her world. And then, and then I'm praying continually for Barbara and that God would open the door for me to participate in the conversation he's having with Barbara. And when that door opens, and I'm going to be really curious, and I'm this way with everyone. It's not just Mormons. I want to know your story. I want to know where you came from, what impassioned you. And for a Mormon, I want to know your testimony because everything is grounded, rooted and grounded in their truth on this personal testimony of the truth of Mormonism, the truth of Joseph Smith as a prophet of God, and everything lives and dies on testimony. And so every sun, every fast and testimony meeting, which is the first Sunday of every month, there's an open mic where they're sharing testimony of their belief and their knowing that this is the true church of God on this earth. And so I'm going to ask Barbara, will you share your testimony with me? And that's their language. And you need to know their accent. You need to know their dialect. And so ask her her testimony. And then it opens the door for you to share your testimony at some point. Maybe it's not that day, but maybe it'll be another day. And, And then you've shared testimony. Well, that brings you to the point where there's got to be some other measure of truth than personal testimony, because as we share our testimonies with each other, and I'll do this with the missionaries also, we both are convinced what we believe is true. We've had an encounter with God, our gods. And so then I introduce the idea eventually that now with missionaries, it'll be right on the spot. There's got to be another standard of truth. And so eventually what I have in my mind is this grid of the Mormon plan of salvation and the biblical plan of salvation. And this is really critical in the essence. For Mormonism, the plan of salvation is something children are taught. We hear about, we're talking about every single Sunday in church. They drill it into um, their members. So 
effectively and so well done. Christianity does not do the same thing in my experience. And so you really will be much more successful if you have an understanding of the biblical and Mormon plans of salvation. And so in my conversations, as the Trinity opens the door for me to engage, I have this grid of who is God, who is man, what's gone wrong, where are we going, how do we get back there, what is God's kingdom, what, do, what are the gifts in God's kingdom, and I'm touching down as God opens the door in those areas, because they say they're Christians, but most Mormons I've ever encountered cannot articulate the biblical plan of salvation, and that is the historical biblical Christianity. And so I want to introduce them to this. All right. Lisa Brockman and I are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about how we, you know, how we live with our Mormon neighbors, 14.8 million of them in the United States. Um, And if you were to Google, you know, like LDS near me, you're going to find that there are LDS congregations in your community. I actually have an LDS temple in my city. Um, And so, you, if you're not aware that this is a presence in your community, really good day to uh, to learn where your Mormon neighbors live, and uh, and as we become more aware of what they understand salvation to mean, we become better equipped as Christians to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus. So, continuing this conversation in just a moment with Lisa Brockman, we'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Lisa Brockman, author of Out of Zion, uh, you can you can actually find her in in all in all the places. If you just go to lisabrockman.me, you can find the book, you can find her blog, you can find her on social media. So let me encourage you to just sort of do some one stop shopping there. Lisabrockman.me. So Lisa, let's um let's pick up the conversation and um let's pick up the conversation this way. So uh, talking with you um, on the 9th of October provoked me to, like, do a little research in my own community. You know, I'm I'm aware of a few LDS, and when I use the word church, that's the way they would describe it. I'm not even comfortable using that word in this context, but that's, you know, that's their language. So, um, and I'm supposed to be now, according to them, using the whole language. So the church. Yeah, of, uh, their whole of title. Yeah, yeah. And so um, uh, so even in our terminology, even in the language that we're using, when we see these facilities going up in our communities, what's going on there in terms of Mormon um, plans and the way that Mormonism contends to expand its footprint? Well, every time you see the church houses where they worship on Sundays are called stake houses. And there are three congregations that generally will meet in each steakhouse. And it's all population-based. So when you see a new church steakhouse being built, the population of Mormons in that area has increased enough to support that. And the same for the temples. So when they have a certain population increase, then they have grounds to build a new temple. And temples are different than church houses. So because I live in a growing city, in a growing region of the country, I am now just looking at a, a geographical map, and I can see 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 20, more than 20 
um, little red dots with um, the trumpeted person, and then I see a few that have uh, a big cross. Um, my guess is that, that that's a distinguishing feature in terms of the size of that particular place. What's the difference between a temple and a, when we use the word stake, is that S-T-A-K-E? Yes. Okay. And yes. a stake house in Mormonism. Well, well, and you'll not find crosses on any of Mormon buildings because we didn't believe really in the proclamation of the cross. I was told in Sunday school classes, if your child died in a car accident, would you wear the car around your neck? And so we didn't use crosses mm. anywhere. The cross wasn't a symbol that was revered. It wasn't appreciated. Um, it was almost an offensive symbol. So they have steeples on top of their church buildings, which are just go straight up to heaven and then, or point to heaven. And then on the top of temples, they have the, a statue of an angel. And so weekly worship, all your daily life with church is done in these steakhouses. And then the temples are just for special ceremonies and, and they're called endowment ceremonies. And so you're not allowed to go into the temple until you go on a mission to prepare to go on a mission or you're getting married. And then if single women uh, remain single through years of their adult life and may not get married, they'll get permission to get a temple recommend because in the temples, you need to be sealed in a temple marriage for time and eternity in order to have eternal life, which is in their highest heaven. And so eternal life, the doorway to eternal life all happens in those temples. And without those ceremonies and endowment ceremonies, you cannot exalt into the highest heaven, which is where when I say eternal life, I'm defining that as in presence of Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So you have, you've provoked me to want to know more, um, because this is a, uh, Mormonism is on the rise, not only here in the United States, but around the world. And um, so thank you for equipping us to, to start conversations, to learn more, to know more about um, the Mormon faith and the Mormon plan of salvation. I really want to highly recommend that people visit Lisa's website, lisabrockman.me, get the book out of Zion. Um, because I think that it's important for us to cultivate uh, an empathetic heart in order that we would actually understand why people are believing what we know is not true. Um, so, Lisa, thank you again so very much for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. All right, friends, we'll be right back. Okay, so tomorrow is Halloween. Um, making today Halloween Eve. I don't actually think that's a thing. But um, we're going to talk about Halloween uh, tomorrow on the show. And so if you want to know about that, that'll be fun. All right, I'm, I'm almost out of time. Have a great day. God bless. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.